explained away. But they do have so much deep meaning to them if we don't gloss them over, if we sit in the discomfort. And so this can represents that it's only God who illuminates truth in the human heart. In the human heart. It's only God um, that can allow us to be responsive, because God is the one to initiate. God also puts the desires and the passion in our heart, and as we'll talk about in just a few moments, it's God also who calls us in to call us out and be a light to the world. So that's what this candle represents. So the beauty about this is, and this is what this is the greatest thing I love about this candle. If there's something that you hear from me today that just doesn't ring true, or you think like that's that's just absolutely not true, just you can forget about it. Seriously, you can be like, that wasn't true, you can move on. But if there is something that resonates with you, um, that's that's from Christ. And and by only by the grace of Christ, not because of you know, any studying I did or any cleverness or anything like that. It, it really is because God illuminates truth as a gift to us. Um, and uh, another truth um, that I hope we're reminded of today, that Andy models so well, is God's activity in your life. God is actively involved in your life, whether you recognize it or not, whether you see it or not. As a matter of fact, I would say even, the, even that you're here this morning is evidence. If you were on the beach, this would be true too, but I'm just saying if, if the fact that you're here is evidence of God's working in your life. I just believe that uh, in my life, and I believe that with every core and ounce of my being. So uh, to begin with, I have a few questions for you uh, that, that represents this passion. The first one is, when have you experienced faith? When have you experienced faith? Just reflect on that for a moment. Could be your own faith. It could be faith from another person. Anytime recently. Something exceptional about this passage today is the next question. You can keep thinking about these two arguments now. When have you encountered great faith? And that word is in today's passage. And Depending on which translation, uh, in the original language, that, that word starts off that particular phrase, great faith. It's, it was emphasized for a reason. When you encounter great, great faith. When have you been humble? It's a trick question. <laughs> don't mean to that. No, I don't want to put any of us in that situation. Um, there's humility in the past, but that is it. When have you written somebody off? And you don't have to share this uh, with, with, with anyone if you don't want to. Uh, just think about this. And maybe later on, if, if something strikes you from the passage and you have a safe relationship, because it's nice to process these things. And that's another way we learn. When have you written someone off? Maybe because of a social war or a religious war, just something that it, maybe it wasn't how you were brought up, it wasn't a value you have, maybe a different theology, maybe it's the way someone looks or dresses or talks. Who knows what? That's a very human experience, by the way. Everyone at some point has written somebody else off for some reason. I know. Uh, I, I don't know if I shared this with Andy, but the first time I met Andy, I, in my mind, I hopefully did not do this to his face. He, he could let us know if I did later. 
I, I did, it part of him, I definitely wrote him up. This is fun. It was, it was a, yeah, he had signed up for a T1 hospital trip. This must have been like 12 years ago, maybe. And he was still in his 20s, I'm almost positive. And uh, he, as Andy is, this part of Andy has not changed. What's beautiful is how I've got to watch Andy grow and mature over, over his life. But this part of Andy has not changed. Just the, the, as soon as he walks in the room, just the biggest person in the room, not in stature, but just his personality. He just fills up the room and is, is you tell he's type A, he's loud, he's funny, he's kind of in your face, all of that. And, and he brought some friends with him. Of course, it's Andy. Of course, he's going to be friends with him. And, um, and it's, been, it's been a long time, but of course, he makes everything he does better too, right? Just him being there, it, it was. It was a fulfilling trip for everyone because it's Andy. But at the time, I mean, I, my ego's involved, and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm the leader. <laughs> you know, this, this, this person's like kind of trying to take over, it, it feels like, right? And I, I was probably a little jealous, but I kind of wrote him off as just this, you know, 20-something, you know, guy who just thinks he's all that way. That's the first time I met him. Now, I'm really glad that it, I didn't let that impression form our relationship. Um, and I think I did have an inkling because I could see God working in his life, doing his grace in his life, that um, I don't know if I had these words back then, so I'm probably misinterpreting a little bit because I've had a hindsight. But something in me knew, like, wow, if if he's here, like God's got a hold of him in some way. And this is one of those people that you want God to get a hold of because they, they have the potential just to make a, a really big and, and sure enough, that's exactly what God has done. But my first impression, just to be honest with you, and I love him like a brother now, was just, I, I, I had written him up. <laughs> what about you, though? What have you written someone up? And keep in mind, I'm not saying any person here, I'm not even saying this church. And I guess this is a church that's a really good reputation in this, in this city, this town. But by and large, we have a reputation. I'm, I'm talking about the Capital C Church, especially the stream of church we're in, as writing people up. We just, that's our reputation. I don't want to be the very bad news today, but I also want to bring some truth and reality because that can impact maybe uh, uh, how, we, how we treat others and we are quite like us. But it's true, that's the reputation of Christians in our world today. We're right or wrong, whatever. We're not, we're not going to make that this morning. But it can be the reputation. So what's cool about this passage is that on the surface, we'll read it in just a moment, it appears that Jesus is just confirming all of our religious and social bias. He's almost giving us permission to people that we might have a legitimate reason to write off. Like, Jesus is doing that for us. And yet, as we look at the context, the surrounding passages, we find, towards the end of the story, uh, just the opposite is happening. And that's, that's why um, context is so imperative in Scripture. You know, Andy does a really good job of teaching that. What first doesn't just meet the eye. The preceding parables, uh, matter of fact, going back to like Matthew 10, Matthew 11, um, Jesus teaches these parables, and in these parables, they're almost, the, the foil typically are the religious leaders in these parables. The ones that are the insiders, the ones that are in the know, the ones that are pious, the ones that have the right actions, the ones where everyone is trying to be like. Jesus seems to have the harshest words against them. And yet here, when we get to the verses in, in 15, 
Jesus just had another interaction with the religious leaders, and they keep getting more harsh and harsh. And after this story, the threshold is moving towards the cross. That's how harsh it's And yet we find the woman that everyone would have written off, even Jesus' own disciples, as the one that isn't the foil of Jesus' story, but in many ways is the hero of the story. So I want to read this. The parallel story is in Mark. Mark tells it in chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. The faith of the Canaanite woman. That's the title that could be in, in your Bibles. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It was a Gentile region. A Canaanite woman from that city came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering, suffering severely. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbles that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. The request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. May God bless us through the reading of the story. I just want to show a map here. This is the region. Um, Ann and I actually get to go here next year together. And I it's I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. I believe we'll I couldn't really tell you much about this region yet. I hopefully it will be one day. And I need a map too, just to let you know, to be reminded of where all the cities are. And I got uh, Jesus spent most of his time uh, in this region. And that region of um, Tyre uh, and Sidon is up towards the north. You can kind of see it's really small word. There's a big phrase, Syrophoenicia. So Mark, he doesn't describe this woman as a Canaanite woman. He describes this woman as a, as a Syrophoenician woman. Now they're essentially the same thing. It means it's, 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 a, it's a multi-ethnic group of people who are non-Jewish or Gentiles from this region. And in the Old Testament, they uh, were enemies of God, taken over later by the Philistines became the main enemies of God. But the people from this region became uh, enemies to Israel. And so not only were they non-Jewish, but they were also, in a sense, adversaries. And he's going to this region because he is taking his disciples on retreat. Most of his ministry is in the Jewish towns. Like, that's where he's doing his work. That's where he was called to. That's what his vocation is at this time. It would be similar to Paul at Acts, where he always starts off in the synagogues and then takes it out to the Gentile world. That's essentially what Jesus is, is doing, too, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messianic prophecies and signs. So I just want to show you that to give you. Sometimes that helps. Hopefully that helps you. Uh, but this, we have to acknowledge, which is pretty obvious, the elephant in the room. Jesus uses this woman as synonymous with the dogs that are fit for the bread that are meant for the children, which are the Israelites, the Jewish people. And another thing I found is if, if this happened today, Jesus would be canceled on Twitter like immediately. And, and if, if I'm honest, I, I have a you know I have a low threshold for conflict. I, I I would be very tempted to like disassociate myself with Jesus at this point because he, he would be instantly canceled on Twitter. And it's really uncomfortable. It's this exchange 
in our gears today, and it should be uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable. So we the context can help us. What is going on here? What's going on here? Just like we shared a moment ago, Jesus' interactions when he was harsh tended to be towards the religious elite, the religious leaders who were Jewish. That's when those interactions, you know, you vipers. I mean, he, he gives really harsh language. We never see Jesus being harsh with the supplicant of his miracles and ministry. This is one of 14 miracles in Matthew. We never see Jesus being harsh with someone who, who is in this great need, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And here's another clue. And I can't explain all of this. I'm not going to try. I'm going to share with you a couple of views this passage in just a moment. But here's something that we do know from this story. The woman isn't offended. She's not ashamed. She doesn't go away. It's, it's not even really a, it doesn't even appear to be a source of enmity. So that, that's, a, that's at least a clue that even though to our ears it's an elephant, at the time it's, it's not necessarily like that. Although we can't fully explain it away either. That's just, that's just true. But there's something going on here that, that is a little different. And at the end of the story, she, along with one other person in the Gospel of Matthew, another Gentile centurion, are the only ones described with great faith. Keep in mind, the Jewish disciples who spent all their time with Jesus, whom he loved, their description, one chapter before, is Peter, oh, you have little faith. I mean, that, that, that is a very clear and intentional juxtaposition. So whatever we think about this exchange and what Jesus thinks about this woman, she alone with the centurion is described as great faith, and we'll see that she's actually a model of faith for the entire gospel. Which is pretty cool. The other thing that this points out this passage, which I think is one of the most important implications for us today, is there is a stark difference that we can forget between religion and faith. Religion is not the same as a relationship with God, ourselves, and other people. It's not the same. It's not to say all religious activity is bad. Not at all. But religion is not faith. Those two things are not synonymous. They're not the same. This passage is great evidence of that, partly because we have a direct, in this very chapter, another confrontation with the Pharisees. And they're having this debate between who is unclean and who is clean. And they're looking at the externals, and they're pointing out to Jesus, and Jesus isn't following the religious and social wars. And so uh, ultimately that leads him to be killed. And then the very next story Matthew tells us, even though it didn't happen chronologically, because this is probably 40 or 50 miles away, right? <laughs> a week or so to get there, so it's not necessarily immediate, but the next story, because Matthew can't tell everything about Jesus, as, as John says, it would take up a letter, right? But the next thing that happens is, there's an object lesson of someone who everyone would have thought was unclean, which is this Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician woman, this adversary. Clean and unclean. And this is all encapsulated by something that would have been very obvious in the original years. And this would have been upsetting to a lot of people as well. That the ones that were the insights, the ones that were the ones that get, the ones that are pure, they miss Jesus right before their eyes. 
And Jesus says, you're blind. And guess what? You're the blind leading the blind. And that's the danger of religion. We, we don't want to miss this. The danger of religion is oftentimes we're so blind to it that we don't know that we're blind to it. And we can be following and engaging in religion, which essentially is dead. It's definitely dead without faith, as James says. Versus this woman, who everyone would not have been unclean. She was a woman, which we'll get to in a moment, and she was a Canaanite woman, an enemy, a dog. That, that would have been a, a normal phrase that Jewish would have, would have thought of uh, Canaanite people. They, they, they were the dogs. And they, they thought dogs were like She's the one that becomes essentially the inside, the one who sees Jesus, the one who has great faith. So that's that's the overall picture of what's going on here. So no matter what we think about this elephant in the room and, and, and how it interacts with our own social and religious mores, this woman who is the apparent outsider turns out to be revealed as the inside. She's the one with great faith. And so as we continue looking at this passage, this is an area where this candle represents allowing ourselves, because God loves us so much. God wants us to be alive. And there is a difference in in your religion and in active faith. Isn't it? Religion typically is marked by possession, control, mastery, and consumption in our culture. We don't maybe think about it that way, but we, we actually try to consume God. We try to have God. And, and I'm just as guilty of this because I'm, I'm in this cultural view as you are. This is our de facto, default, unconscious way that we approach God. I'm going to master God, I want to have God, I want to have what God has, whatever the case may be. But faith, over and over again in Scripture, is marked by this woman's interaction with Jesus. It's, it's an encounter with the living Christ who meets us in our despair, in our need, in our brokenness, and transforms. That's what faith is. It's an encounter. It's a real, active, live encounter with the living Christ who meets us. In our broken areas, our death places, it brings life into the dead, transforms them. That's what faith is. There couldn't be a bigger gap. So there's a lot at stake here. Would you agree? There's a lot at stake here for us and the people also in our lives. So the question remains, what is great faith? So that's faith, but what is great faith? And it comes, again, from the most unlikely sources, this Canaanite woman. So just a, a few aspects of great faith from this passage is that great faith disregards religiosity. Disregards it. This woman comes from a region that uh, was polytheistic. It, it, they didn't necessarily believe in the one true living God. Didn't necessarily believe, therefore, in a Messiah. They had all kinds of strange customs. Um, they probably had a lot more privileges in the Roman Empire than Jews did, which is, was another reason for their enmity. And again, she would have been thought of as unclean. We just found that out in chapter 15. So again, this is an object lesson. And as a Canaanite, that would have been definite code for being unclean. So there's a reason why Mark softens it and Matthew leaves it in. He's trying to highlight how unclean this woman was by not calling her Syrophoenician, that's just Gentile, but calling her a king. So again, an object of scorn. 
And this conventional wisdom we see from the Pharisees that the reason why they were trying to protect themselves and the people is that if you were clean and you engaged something unclean, whether you touched it or even got in proximity, you became unclean. It, it affected you. It transformed you negatively. I'm clean. I engage with unclean. And now I'm unclean. I'm contaminated. And that means I'm no longer holy. That means God's presence isn't with me. And the Pharisees in particular were, their fear was God is not coming back. It's not, it's not entering the temple with his presence again because of our unholiness. So this holiness is not just our own personal holiness. It's actually going to, it's keeping us from being in the temple again. And God basically leading us in. So to them, that's what clean and unclean means. That's what the case Unclean and clean. But with Jesus, it's just the opposite. When something unclean engages the clean Jesus, everything becomes clean. Amen. Everything becomes holy. Everything becomes loved. Everything becomes bad. And that's what he's engaging the Pharisees with, and they're blind. They don't see it. So they scorn him. And just like we mentioned before, they later kill him. So then we get to this interaction. Jesus is seemingly reflecting these normal religious and social mores that people would have yawned at this, you know, when he has this interaction, originally here, they probably would have yawned. Yeah, yeah, of course, they're, they're dogs. Like, your mission is to the Jews, God's love and chose people, not to the dogs. And this word is really interesting. There's a couple clues in this word. Is in the Greek world, dogs were pets. They, they were, they were, I just had a conversation outside. I'm a dog person now. I love my dog. I miss my dog. Our dog gets treats. I just gave my dog a bath. Our dog lives a better life than we do. <laughs> but the Jews, they, the dogs were not pets. They, they were unclean. They were scavengers. So it, it meant something different. So Jesus is using this turn of phrase that was common in that day. And there's two, there's two views in the scholarly world. The first is, uh, that he is he's using this he's using this phrase as a way uh, even though it's not as offensive as, as it sounds to our ears because they do dogs differently but his first vocation was to Jerusalem that was his first vocation because he was the promise to fulfill Messiah it wasn't his time yet to go to the Gentiles he didn't he didn't go to every single person when he was on earth he had a really small region that he could minister with it was almost exclusively Jewish people and then they were to be like to the world Paul did the same thing he talks about that hey, you're the ones grafted in, and then we're going to engraft the Gentile mission is coming. But it's not its not its time. So that's kind of one of the views. And this woman's faith uh, just enraptures Jesus' heart so much that he, you know, he is looking at her heart. It's like, wow, this, this person's heart. So that's, that's, that's one view. Another view is that he's testing her. That it's kind of wordplay because she's not offended. She actually keeps pursuing him. And, and, and again, dogs weren't... Uh, even though the, the, the meaning of it was that she couldn't have the bread like the children, dogs weren't that offensive. And the word he uses is a, is a diminutive form, so it's almost like a puppy. It's not like these, these dogs. One other word that is interesting is that when the disciples say, send her away, it actually sounds like, in that language, it sounds like the lost sheep of Israel. So in that sense, it reverberates when someone asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells a story of an even more hated group of people, the Samaritans. Well, the good neighbor in this story 
is the Samaritan. And that really got Jesus in a lot of trouble. So the person that you maybe have written up the most, it'd be like Jesus putting them as, this is the model of faith. No matter what their religion is, what their creed is, what their sexual orientation is, no matter what. Imagine whatever person, maybe you've written up for whatever reason, Jesus saying, that person is the model of faith. They have great faith. That's who Jesus is, was saying basically about this American person in their, in their original views. Not to mention, in the ancient Near East, you've probably heard of this, women were thought of as less than. We know that's not true today. We actually know that Jesus didn't believe that either. His women were blessed by him. He had a reputation for honoring and giving time to the marginalized, the poor, the outcasts, and women. I want to read you a really offensive quote. And it's a quote that has actually stood the test of time, believe it or not, in various ways. It's actually from Aristotle, from his generation of animals. And this really describes the Greek culture uh, and in many ways, the Jewish culture at that time. The female is, as it were, deformed male, and that because females are weaker and colder at their, at, their, at their nature, we should look upon the female state as being, as it were, a deformity. That's from Aristotle. So women were thought of as less than men. That was just, it, it was just unquestioned. So the fact that Jesus is interacting with this woman and she has great faith, it, 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 we can't emphasize how dramatic this is. That she becomes the hero of the story in the society. And you might think, oh, that's an anomaly. Well, how about a prayer from Plato? I thank you, God, that I was born Greek and not a barbarian, a free person, a free man, and not a slave, and not a woman. There's a Jewish prayer of that time that just reversed things that I'm a Jew and not a Greek. Thank you that I'm a man and not a, not a woman. Commonplace. So again, whatever we think about this passage, however uncomfortable it is, it's okay. We have to keep in mind that at the end of the story, she's the one that is modeled with great faith, a designation only reserved for her and a centurion soldier who would have been hated maybe equally as much because he was a peacekeeper in an occupied and oppressed people. Hated. Hated. Great faith. Great faith disregards religiosity. Disregards it. Keep in mind, and this is in chapter 15, but chapter 1 is, is only a short time away, where Matthew reminds us of Jesus' own lineage. Remember, remember these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. These are people at that time who were outcasts. These were the ones that were cast aside, and, and Matthew reminds us they were, they were in Jesus' lineage. So whatever we think about this exchange, this woman has great faith. She is valued. And this is definitely against any kind of norm we may have. So the next aspect of great faith is that being responsive to Jesus and not just having religion. So this woman is, keep in mind, this woman is being responsive to Jesus coming from this Gentile region 
even though she knows there's going to be trouble. She, I guarantee you she's experienced this before. And the disciples' first interaction, first words, probably don't help. Send her away. Just, just get rid of her. Write a request for her. Like she's embarrassing us. We don't have time for her. Disregard her. And yet she is still responsive. She, she's overcome these obstacles because she has heard of Jesus' reputation as someone who's marginalized and women have value around. And even though she probably knows his ministry is mostly to the Jews, that doesn't stop her. She's responsive anyways. That is amazing faith. When, when have you encountered, experienced, expressed faith against all the odds, against all the obstacles, against what even maybe your friends and family said, against what society said, against what maybe your, your, your culture said, any of that? That's essentially what she does. Not only that, the religious leaders, the insiders, they only address Jesus as a teacher, a rabbi. She says, Lord. She's not Jewish. Son of David, a messianic term. She's acknowledging, even though she doesn't have the same history, she's acknowledging that she is sent from God. He is special. How could she possibly know that? It's not like people in her society would be affirming that. There's lots of obstacles to that, too. She was responsive to Jesus. Great faith is responsive. It's active to God's leading, to God's love, to God's invitation. And this, is this to me, really kind of cemented this interaction as, as being a, a positive one. Even though for the first reading, it's like it's really uncomfortable. Like you would never want to preach this upon the first reading. But this is what's submitted for me. If you, if you go back and look at the parables of the previous ten chapters, Jesus doesn't back down from religious leaders because there's a lot of state in this new religion, leading people astray with blind, leading blind. His compassion for them and his compassion for the people they're leading. And he takes their logic and he turns it on them, essentially, to where they look really foolish. Like they don't get it. They're, they're on the, they think they're on the, the inside. They're, they don't get it. They're leading people astray. And here in, in this story, Jesus doesn't do that with the women. Jesus doesn't necessarily correct her. The woman turns Jesus' logic on him. And he accepts it. Where, where else does that happen in Scripture? I'll save some time for you. It doesn't. <laughs> this outcast, Gentile, thought of as a dog, despised, scorned, thought of as less than woman, Jesus allows her to be the teaching that, that day to his disciples. He doesn't have to give a sermon. She's the sermon. And she gives the sermon to Jesus. He allows that to happen. And that, that goes against our sensibilities. Wait a second. This is the living God. God's not going to do that. Well, God did it. It's okay. It's uncomfortable. That's okay. God did that. God let a woman teach it. That's unbelievable. She became the lesson. She turned Jesus' logic, and that leads me to believe the latter interpretation. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He did first know that his vocation was to the Jews, but he also knew the greater mission. And we find that in Matthew 28, when he gives the disciples that commission to all nations. And we see that in Acts 1 to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. To the ends of the earth. This wasn't surprising. But he knew this was coming, this interaction, when it, when it was going on. He, he knew how it was going to end, I believe. Nonetheless, she turns his teaching and she is responsive. And then great faith 
is for the sake of others. There's religious leaders are epitomizing religio religiosity. They're, they're scared for themselves. Are we in reality? We're the gatekeepers. They're self-preserving. We're scared that, that God isn't going to return because we're unholy. We're the holiness police. Those are my words, not theirs. It's my interpretation. They're blind to their vocation. They're blind to their vocation. Nietzsche Wright thinks that when he cleaned, when, when Jesus turns the tables over at the temple, it's, it's not only because they're making a mockery of the monetary system and they're commercializing the temple. Yes, that's true. But it's because they fail, they're failing to proceed in their vocation, which is to be a light in the world, you would say. You were to be salt and light. The temple was meant to be a beacon for all peoples, not an insulatory holy club for the religious. Listen to this amazing quote from John Scott. I heard uh, Joe Saxon read this. I want to read it to you. It's unbelievable. It's from one of his books. He says this, Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregard for human life, and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with the strike. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there's no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question asked is, where is the light? Similarly, if meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there's no sense in blaming meat. That's what happens when bacteria are left alone to breathe. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming societies. That is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Where are the salt and the light of Jesus Christ not why is the salt and the light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing our society? Amen? Isn't that amazing? We are called to be salt and light. Great faith is for the sake of others. And we see this happening. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt yeah. your wonderful service, but there's a, a white Toyota that's a like an SUV and a Toyota short, and those owners, I I was dropped off here and there, and I think my red wallet fell. Okay. And I want to be sure it's not underneath the car. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we found it! Yeah! I'm so glad you came in. Talk about courage. with his disciples who he's training and he loves them and he saves them 
and he calls them out, and he acknowledges how hard it is, and he says, hey, don't have a little faith. He interacts with these Pharisees, and they're just, they're quibbling about religion. It's, it, it's like, it's like, uh, uh, what's his name right there? We talking about practice? We talking about practice? Yes. That, that's kind of, it's like, we're talking about, you guys are still talking about religion? You're talking about who's in and who's out and, and the do's and don'ts and what we look like and what we can't look like and what's okay and what's... They're really, we're talking about practice right now? And then he has this ordained interaction with this woman who has great faith. Her daughter is healed. And keep in mind, the centurion, his great faith was on behalf of someone. This woman's great faith was on behalf of someone because great faith that not only defies religiosity, it not only is responsive, it's for the sake of others. Yeah, I mean, we're involved too. She was blessed. We're blessed too. But ultimately, those are kind of these ingredients that we get to the story. So then Jesus feeds another 4,000. There's evidence that this next different crowd who he's feeding is a mixed audience. So we already see this interaction with this woman because the words he uses are more general. They're not just Jewish words, which means it's probably a mixed audience. So this interaction with this woman is already having dramatic implications in his ministry for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. And you don't get passed out. It's not passed out as spiritual practice for you. Everyone will get one. And as you're getting this, I'll share a story and then I'll explain and you can take it home this week. So uh, I frequent uh, a pub and eatery uh, uh, most weeks, and I, I, I know the owner, and I have a lot of respect for entrepreneurs. I think it's amazing what they do. I'm not entrepreneurial. And, and this person's amazing. They're starting. They're starting another restaurant, and I've been encouraging them. So I meet with them. I meet with them one time, and they're talking about how, uh, how they, 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 they had to buy this car because they have to go up to LA where their next business is. And this person is just glowing. They're absolutely glowing. And he said, he says to me in this story. He says to me, "Hey, are you religious?" And, and, and in our public world, that's code for do you believe in God? That's like an acceptable way to say you believe in God. Hey, are you religious? And I said, I'm, I'm definitely religious. Like, I love God. I just wanted him to know that. And then he shared the story. The person he was buying a car from was, was basically evangelizing to him. And he grew up in the church, but he told me, he's like, I, I have a lot of church here. He's like, I'm gay, and I'm, I'm just gay, and I have a lot of church here. I, I can't really go to church. And and then I told him, well, I'm a pastor, and you need to go back to church. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. <laughs> I, but I, I, just, I just listened. I just listened. I just listened. And, and he didn't know he didn't know how much I love God. I kid you not. He was, like, he was trying to evangelize me. So I kept saying, like, hey, I want to help encourage you. I love God. And I just want to let you know it was messy. There's not an end to it. But for me, that's someone years ago I would have just written off. And I would have tried to correct them. I would have tried to do a lot of things. And I want to encourage you this week, beyond your social and religious morals, do not just do religion. You have a gift here in this church of relationships. This is a place that great faith is happening. And you can be fine. This bookmark um, has this passage, and I want you to close your eyes as I as I read it. And the questions on the back are meant to be a way to interact with the passage. There's different practices. 
So ground your feet on the floor, open up your palms. This is in Matthew, earlier in Matthew. This is Eugene Peterson's translation. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out in religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to have a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or fitting on you. Keep coming with me, and you'll learn to love freely and lightly. Amen. Oh. <laughs>